Tommy's not here, so I get to make mistakes. It's okay. All right, so I am going to read verses 1 through 11 just to get us started. We'll be looking at the whole chapter. And so I say to you, hear the word of God. Paul writes, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in the darkness, brothers, that that day should surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Thanks be to God, for this is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer now as we enter into the scripture? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word this morning. And though it is a challenging word in many ways, we pray that that challenge not cause our hearts to fear and make us faint-hearted, but instead we, we receive the challenge with joy because we know we fulfill it and face it not in our own strength, but in the strength you supply through your Holy Spirit Lord Jesus, we pray that, Holy Spirit, you are among us, guiding me as I speak and those who listen as they hear, that we may all be transformed through your power and ministry among us. It's in your name we pray, most holy trinity. Amen. Well, it's been some time since we looked at 1 Thessalonians. I think it's been several months at least. And so I thought we'd begin this morning with just a little bit of review. If you remember last time, we looked at 1 Thessalonians 4, and particularly we looked at this concept of hope. We called hope the most powerful word in any language. And we asked particularly, what is the nature of Christian hope? What vision of the future does the Bible lay out to us and then ask us to put our hope in? And we saw there were two possibilities, at least, two sort of possible interpretations of biblical hope. And we saw that the first of those was false or incorrect. Now, hopefully... This won't ruffle any feathers like it did during the summer, but this false possibility, this false hope, might be well epitomized by maybe my least favorite movie franchise of all time, probably the worst in history, I'd go so far to say. And that is, of course, Left Behind. Right? Left Behind is a popular example of what might be called rapture theology. In this view of biblical hope, what happens at the end of time is that all Christians are raptured. The the Latin word raptus just means to be caught up or seized. And so all Christians will be seized and then carried off to heaven by Jesus. And then everything else, creation and all of the non-Christians, will be destroyed, will be consumed in fire. And so at the end, there is no more creation. There is just the saints dwelling in heaven with the Creator. Now, this hope, this version of biblical hope, is wrong for many reasons, and I'd refer you to the details in the last sermon. But sort of the big reason why this cannot be biblical hope is because in this theology, in this rapture theology, evil wins. Satan wins, I'd go so far to say. And that's because of this, that if rapture theology is true, then at the end of time, Satan can say to God, God, you created a beautiful creation. 
You made a vast cosmos of awesome scope and beauty, and I took it away from you. Oh, sure, you delivered a few souls into heaven, and yet all of the rest of it was destroyed. You must have lacked the power to take it back from me. It was ruined. And so punish me. Send me to hell. Do your worst. But I took it away from you, and so I win. And I'd say that in that scenario, Satan would be correct. He would win in that scenario. But thanks be to God, thanks, thank goodness, that that is not what biblical hope is, that there is this better vision that we're given, starting in 1 Thessalonians 4, which we looked at last time. If you remember, in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul gives us a glimpse of the future. And it is a future on the last day when Christians are indeed caught up into the clouds. But as we saw, those who are alive at that time, those who are left at that time, are caught up into the clouds, not to, to stay in the clouds or to go off to a place called heaven. Rather, they are meeting King Jesus as he descends to earth. And with King Jesus is a royal retinue of all the departed, all those who have fallen asleep, all the dead Christians, in other words. And then all together, we accompany the king back to earth so that he may establish the kingdom of God on earth. In other words, biblical hope is this thing we call renewed creation. That at the end, there is a great resurrection of the dead, just like the final line of the Apostle Creed says, we believe in the resurrection of the body. And in that resurrection, we are given new physical bodies, and the physical creation, from the ground under your feet to the sky over your head, is itself redeemed. And it is glorious and purged of evil. Evil is banished from creation for good. And that is indeed a glorious hope. It sets me on fire just thinking about it. And as glorious it is, though, it sort of raises a question. Great, we, we have a glorious hope, which is like your favorite story, which for me would be The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings. It's like the end of that, and so we get to look forward to it. However, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do until then? Do we just sort of sit around and wait? What do we do in the meantime? How should we live in light of our hope? Well, I'm glad you asked, actually, because the chapter this morning was written to answer that very question. Paul, having laid out this glimpse of the future, then turns and concludes his letter by saying, okay, here's your hope, here's now how you live in the meantime. And Paul is going to challenge us in three ways this morning that we're going to see. Paul is going to ask us first to examine ourselves. Second, he's going to challenge us to exercise our faith. And third, we are going to be encouraged to encourage the faint-hearted, to be an encouraging people. And so we will see all of those three things in turn, beginning with examining ourselves. I'm just going to reread verses 1 through 3 to refresh us briefly. So Paul says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. You notice Paul opens here, he opens chapter 5 with a rather ominous warning, that when people sort of feel at the top, when they feel good about their lives, that's when destruction comes upon them. The warning is ominous enough in itself, which is ominous on the page. And yet, if you understand the historical context in which these words were written, it maybe even becomes more ominous. The key to understanding what Paul is saying here is this phrase he uses, peace and security. It turns out that the phrase pax et securitas 
was a, a slogan, peace and security, that the Roman emperors would use to justify their rule. They would say, submit to the Roman Empire, pay your taxes, you know, obey, and you will have peace and security. It, it was a, a propaganda, basically, that was spread throughout the empire that the emperor, Caesar, as a divine figure, would provide the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. You know, this was so central to the emperor's ideology that they even put it on their money. You notice, you see the coin up there on the screen. Do you see the word pox written on one side? That is peace. And so every time the Thessalonians or any other person in the Roman Empire would go to the marketplace, any time they opened their wallet to spend money, they would see a reminder that Caesar promised them peace. In a sense, the gospel of Caesar was preached to them everywhere. And that, that gospel of Caesar took the form of power, that if you submitted to Caesar as your God, in a sense, or the one who takes care of you, then you would have security. You would have material prosperity. You would be socially accepted. All of these things. It was the kind of peace you could print on money, in other words, and came in the form of money, as opposed to a different kind of peace. As opposed, in opposition to this gospel of Caesar, there is another gospel and another kind of peace, and that is the peace that Paul lays out for the Thessalonians. It's what we're going to call, in summary, the Pax Christiana, the Christian peace. And what's interesting about this form of peace is that it does not look very peaceful to those who are not practicing it. In the first century, when Paul is writing, Christians are not powerful. In fact, it, just by being Christians, they often give up their power and social standing. They give up their money with Caesar's peace printed on it. In other words, by embracing Christian peace, they are made outcasts, outsiders. They're made weird in their workplaces, in their schools, and everywhere they go, they become weird by embracing this Christian peace, whether that they're killed for it and crucified, or whether they are just excluded. No threat to the Roman peace can be tolerated. And, and do you know why the Christians were excluded? It's because they had the gall, they had the temerity to say that Jesus was the Lord of creation, not Caesar. That above Caesar, there was a greater king, and that was seen as a threat to Caesar's rule. And because of that, Caesar has to lash back. He lashes back with violence, hard power, and then he lashes back with exclusion, soft power, you might say. And so by pointing this out, by Paul, by using this imperial phrase, pax et securitas, peace and security, Paul is forcing the Thessalonians to examine themselves. It's as if he's saying to them, Thessalonians, you need to decide which peace do you want. Do you want the peace of Caesar? Do you want to be socially acceptable? Do you want to be powerful, have good standing in the community? Do you want to be wealthy and well-connected? If that's what you want, if that's the kind of peace you want, if you want security and comfort, Caesar's your God. Go to him. But be warned, there will come a day when Caesar won't be God anymore. On the other hand, there's the Christian peace, which in the present takes the form often of suffering. And yet Paul, in many places, in this letter and in other letters, will say that the Christian peace transcends suffering. It transcends the present circumstances. Paul will write to the Philippian church that they have the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, which will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This Christian peace, in other words, is a peace that clings to that hope that we talked about at the beginning. The hope that Caesar will not always be king, that one day King Jesus will return and dethrone all other kings, and then creation will be redeemed, and we will reign with him. It's a peace that clung to hope. 
Now, this was the challenge laid out to the Thessalonians. Which peace do you want, Caesar's peace or Christ's peace? I'd say it's a challenge to us as well. I want you to stop for a moment and think about the American church, Christianity in the United States. Generally speaking, which sort of peace do we concern ourselves with? Do we tend to be very worried about our security, about our comfort, about being politically influential, about being powerful in various ways? If so, then we may have fallen for a sort of false peace. We may have embraced unwittingly the gospel of Caesar in some ways. On the other hand, are we a church that is content and even rejoices when we're outsiders, when we are excluded, that we rejoice when we have to suffer for the name of Jesus? If so, then we have embraced the Pax Christiana, the Christian peace. And if we do that, and I think Paul would say you should do that, and I would say this morning we should embrace that Christian peace, fair warning that there is, in a sense, some hard work ahead if we embrace Christian peace. And that hard work of exercising our faith is where Paul goes next. And so I'm going to reread to you verses 4 through 8 to, to refresh us. So Paul writes, verse 4, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul, having laid out this hope and then also warning us that if we embrace Christian peace, um, we, we may suffer for it, he then proceeds to the next question, how do you know? How do you know whether you've embraced the peace of Christ or the peace of Caesar? What is the sign that you've done so? And he offers to us two images. You notice Paul has two sort of metaphors here. He says that those who have embraced the peace of Christ stay awake or they stay sober, and then those who embrace the peace of Christ also put on armor, right? He uses the image of a soldier's armor. Now, we're going to look at those two images in just a second, but I wanted to sort of head off a potential misunderstanding here that some Christians might have. When Christians hear that the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and yet we will not be surprised by it, well, all sorts of wackiness can ensue. Because a lot of Christians hear that and they say, oh, we're not supposed to be surprised by the day of the Lord. The Bible then must contain a sort of code, a secret code or some surefire signs that we'll know when the day of the Lord is coming. We'll know for sure. Every generation has thought this in one way or the other, at least so far, they've been incorrect. You know, I don't know if you follow popular media, but recently there was a lot of hoopla about the moon, right? That the blood moons were per, you know, predicting the end of the world. And I thought to myself, if God communicates through the moon, does that mean people in the Northwest are just kind of hosed? Right? We just... <laughs> We can't see the moon most of the time, and so God's like, here it comes, and we're like, what? You know, and then, too bad for us, I guess. You notice that Paul, having said, the day of the Lord will not surprise you like a thief, he doesn't lay out a secret code. He doesn't say, look at the moon or anything like that. What he does is he offers you these two images for exercising your faith. And so let's look at these now. The first is staying awake. Paul says that we are to stay awake or be sober, not live like it's night, but live like it's day. Bluntly, 
If I were going to translate this metaphor into sort of layman's terms, I'd say Paul is saying Christians shouldn't be lazy about their faith. The Christian life requires some effort. It requires that every day we earnestly seek to be more and more like Jesus, that we pursue this thing called sanctification, which just is a fancy word meaning we try more and more to be like Jesus every day, which if you've tried that for more than five minutes, is pretty hard, actually. It takes some effort, but Paul says we need to stay awake and do this. In fact, by, by using the phrase stay awake, he may be evoking a specific episode from the life of Jesus. If you know the story of Jesus' ministry, there, there was a night just before he died, just before he went to the cross, where Jesus was literally awake. That In the Garden of Gethsemane, he stayed awake, praying to his Father, seeking his Father's will. And because he stayed awake, Jesus was prepared when judgment came. When the time came for him to go to the cross, he was not caught unawares. His disciples, on the other hand, well, they fell asleep. And because they fell asleep, they were caught unawares, and they reacted to judgment when it came in the worst possible way. They forsook Jesus. They, they ran from Jesus, and in a sense, judgment came upon them. Judgment as they did not expect, of course. But they fell asleep. And this episode is a model for us, that if we're trying to be like Jesus, we need to be diligent. We need to, to earnestly seek to be more and more like him so judgment doesn't take us unaware. Now, at this point... A lot of evangelicals who know good evangelical theology might start to itch. You might start to balk a little bit. Because by saying that the Christian life requires effort and hard work, aren't I threatening the gospel? Don't we believe that Christians are saved through faith alone, not through work? That's true. Christians are saved through faith alone, but we need to understand very carefully what that means. And so to make this point, I'm going to call in a preacher much better than I am. And he is, of course, Martin Luther. Martin Luther was famously adverse to any idea that salvation was um, by works. Martin Luther was all about salvation by faith. And yet, Luther could also write this in his sermon on 1 Thessalonians 4, actually, which was no doubt much better than the sermon you're hearing right now. And so Luther writes, or preached originally, that God certainly bears with those who fall into sin. But... He wants people to recognize and strive to become better and always more complete so that his grace does not become a cover for shame or immoral people who misuse the kingdom of Christ as an excuse for their lewdness, which sounds worse when you read aloud, frankly. But you get Luther's point that, yes, we believe we're saved through faith alone, but faith is not an excuse for laziness. As a matter of fact, if you want to know your faith is real, if you want to know your faith is alive and growing and not weak or dying, then what you need to do is exercise it. The way to have a healthy faith is the same way to have a healthy body. You exercise your faith, and and the way you exercise your faith is through the daily struggle. As a matter of fact, you might sum all of this up by saying, Christians are called to live every day as if it's the last one. Do you not want to be surprised by the day of the Lord when it comes? Then live like it is the day of the Lord today. That if every day we are living and pursuing Jesus as if today were the day creation will be renewed and he will return, then we won't be caught surprised. That's what Paul means by staying awake. And by doing that, our faith grows by pursuing that daily grind. You know, it's, it's no mistake, I think, that the second image Paul uses is the image of armor, that we put on a breastplate and a helmet, because so much of the Christian life can be about conflict. 
Christians have conflict externally from the Caesars of the world. We also, frankly, have conflict from spiritual powers of evil, from Satan and his minions. But even, perhaps most of all, we have conflict within ourselves. That as our sin battles with the Holy Spirit in us, it's day by day we have to take up our breastplate and our helmet and fight. We must make effort towards becoming more and more like Jesus. And it's in that effort that we don't earn merit. It's not as if we earn salvation, but it's that our faith comes alive. And it's through that faith we receive salvation. And so salvation by faith alone and hard work are not opposed to one another. It's not what Martin Luther thought. It's not what the Apostle Paul thought. It's not what Jesus thinks, that those two things go together. And so, if you're like me then, hearing all that, you're tempted to become exhausted. Doesn't that just sound tiring on the face of it? You know, I hear, you need to work hard, and I immediately start to despair because I am lazy in my faith. I am lazy about pursuing Jesus. I don't know, maybe I'm the only one that's like that. But I hear that, that challenge, and I immediately start to balk. I grow faint-hearted. And the good news is, is that this is not the last point Paul has for us this morning, that the last point is indeed encouraging the faint-hearted. And so I'm actually going to read the rest of the letter. Bear with me. It's not as long as it looks. Some of those verses are very short. But I'm going to read verse 9 through 28, which will finish out our letter here. And so Paul writes, beginning in verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies or preaching, but test everything. Hold fast for what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You notice Paul, up to this point, this is how the letter ends. Up to this point, he has given us a glimpse of the future. He's given us hope of renewed creation. He spent most of chapter 5 telling us how we should live in the present in light of that hope. And now here at the very end, he chooses to conclude with encouragement. He's given us all of this, and he thinks the last thing the Thessalonians and us need to hear is encouragement. You notice he begins by reminding them of the gospel, that whether we are alive at the last day or whether we are asleep, or that is, dead at the last day, nonetheless, Jesus will come and resurrect us all. And that the very same judge that we meet on the last day is the same one who died for us. That God has not destined us for wrath, that the judge we must face is the judge who loves us, the judge who broke his body and shed his blood on the cross 
for us. Paul reminds us of that, first of all, and then concludes with a series of exhortations, of challenges. And you notice how many of those challenges have to do with encouragement. You might almost say that Paul provides a blueprint here. He provides a checklist for what a healthy church looks like. So you ready? Here's sort of a a summary, according to Paul, of a healthy church. What does Paul say a healthy church does? Well, a healthy church loves its leaders, encourages the faint-hearted, helps the weak, is patient, rejoices, and is always in prayer. You know, each of these items could be a sermon unto itself. We could spend a lot of time unpacking each of these items Paul includes. But if you step back and look at the big picture, I think it'd be safe to say that for Paul, a healthy church is one that is other-centered. That in each of these cases, a healthy church is one in which every individual member is looking out for all the other members. That my, my first concern is not myself, how to get what I want, what I need, but what my neighbor wants. That more and more the love of God and the love of neighbor, which is the whole law, according to Jesus, becomes more and more the way I live. We start to put others before ourselves in whatever context we find ourselves. A healthy church is other-centered. And that's very good news, because as we said, the Christian life can indeed be strenuous. It indeed requires hard work of us. But the good news is that we're not alone in that work. The Christians are not meant to be hardy individualists, uh, toughing it out by themselves. That each of us is meant to encourage and look out for the other. And so, you know, I don't often give homework attached to my sermons. In fact, I'm sort of allergic to that. But there's a first time for everything. And so I do have homework for you this morning. Here's what I want you to do. I want you today to encourage someone. I want you to find someone that is either faint-hearted, in a sense doubting faith or struggling in faith. Find someone who maybe has no faith at all but still needs encouragement. Maybe someone in your family, maybe someone in the wider congregation. I want you to find that person and encourage them. And when you do, remind them first of all of the gospel, that God has not destined us for wrath, but that God in Jesus Christ loves us, has broken his body and shed his blood for us. And then remind him of the hope that is attached to that gospel. That someday King Jesus will return and dethrone all the other kings. All the Caesars will be no more. And creation itself will be renewed. We will have new bodies that don't suffer illness, that aren't aren't weak. And creation itself from the ground to the sky and everything else will be redeemed. And we will reign with Jesus. Remind them of that hope. And then finally offer them support in the present. That can be praying for them, but really pray for them. You know, among Christians, I'll pray for you can sometimes be leave me alone in reality, right? Like, oh yeah, yeah, I'll pray for that. Really offer to pray for that person and even more hear them out. Listen to what's going on in their life and don't necessarily even talk. Just hear them out and offer them that support. And finally, if they're not connected in our church, grab them and maybe join a community group. You know, a lot of this exercising faith happens best in small groups. And so if you're not connected, Don't try to be an individualist about faith. Faith can be a hard thing to live out. And so find others to come alongside you. Join a community group. Get involved so we can encourage one another. Okay, does that seem like a reasonable assignment? I I, I hope it is. And so I encourage you today to find someone to encourage. And also be encouraged. Don't be the tough guy who can encourage others but can't be encouraged himself or tough gal as it may be. All right, with that being said, let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, that first of all, you've given us yourself, that you give us yourself in the gospel, that that your righteousness becomes ours, and we are connected to you through the Holy Spirit. But we also thank you that we're connected to one another, 
that you have given us uh, many brothers and sisters in you, that we have a, a church that is encouraging us, that can help us when we are weak. We thank you so much for these blessings, Lord Jesus, as we hope for that glorious future you have for us and creation. It's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen.